We are looking at uh, the Apostle Peter's first letter. It's a letter he wrote around 63 AD to Christians in what we now know as um, modern-day Turkey. And if you've been tracking with us, you may or may not have uh, noticed that up until now, Peter has not told them to do anything. He's not given them any instructions. He's not given them any commands. He's not says, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. So far, there are no thou shouts or thou shalt nots. Instead, so far, it's all been about what God has done for them. And boy, has he done a lot, Peter says. Everyone else may be rejecting these people, but God has chosen them. He's loved them. He has set them apart. He's given them new life and new hope and an eternal inheritance in Christ. And as a result, he says, despite the fact that they are facing increasing hostility because they are Christians, they are experiencing overflowing joy. And it's all because, he says, as we saw last week, they have been caught up And carried along, Peter says in verses 10 to 12, in the great river of God's plans and purposes in Christ. Plans and purposes he first revealed through the prophets, then proclaimed through the gospel, that Jesus himself would suffer and then be glorified. And all of that is true for them. But of course, it's also true for you and for me if you are a Christian You see, fundamentally, if you haven't got this yet, fundamentally, Christianity is not a list of things you've got to do. Christianity is not that God gives you a to-do list. And here are all all the things you've got to do, and here are all the things you mustn't do. Religion is that. Moralism is that. Because they say that if you are to find your way to God, or if you're to experience true enlightenment, or if you're just to be the kind of person that you should be, you need to do this and this and not do that and that. But Christianity is different because it's not about what you do for God. It is all about what God has done for you in Christ. And so Peter has begun this letter by saying, and just look what he has done for you. Okay, but did you notice the first word in today's passage? Okay, verse 13. Therefore, understanding all that God has done for you in Christ is going to change the way that you live. First point then, why you live the way you do. Why you live the way you do. I mean, have you ever taken a moment to step back and ask yourself that question? Why do you, why are you living the way you are at the moment? Why are you living the way you are? Why do you do the kind of stuff that you do or don't do? Let's say that you're a student. Why are you spending time studying and revising? Or if you're not a student... Why did you take your current job? Why do you use the time that you have the way that you do? Why do you find yourself working the hours you do? Why did you pull that all-nighter? 
Or why have you taken the decision that you are never going to pull an all-nighter? Why does life feel out of balance for you? Or why have you taken steps to put life into right balance? If you're married, why do you find yourself arguing a lot? Or maybe why do you refuse to argue and you've chosen to live at peace? If you're a parent, why do you raise, why do you discipline, why do you parent your kids the way that you do? If you're single, why are you taking steps to find a partner? Or why are you not taking steps to find a partner? And I ask you all of that because there's always a therefore to your life. You live the way you do because you've taken certain decisions, you spend your time in certain ways, you do some things and you don't do other things because of this or that. There's always a therefore to our lives. And that therefore, why you live the way you do, your present is almost always based on your past or the future that you do or you don't want. You failed the exam last time, therefore this time you are studying hard. Or the reason you're studying hard is because passing the exam will open doors for you in the future. And you want that future. You have got dreams for the future. Therefore, you are in the Rolex Learning Center by six o'clock every morning. Or someone hurt you in the past and you don't want that repeated. Therefore, you're arguing now. You're fighting over this issue. Or you saw the way your dad treated your mum and you don't want your future to look like that. Therefore, you're choosing not to argue. Or you look back over the last year and you realise things were out of whack and if you carry on that way, the future doesn't look great. Therefore, you are taking steps to put things right. There's always a therefore that explains the way we live and the things that we do. And it's nearly always either because of the past we've experienced, good or bad, or the future that we hope or hope not to experience. Okay, so look again at verse 13. Therefore. And Peter is saying, listen, I want to reorient you Rather than it being about what you've done in the past or what you've had done to you in the past, rather than it being about the future that you hope to create, rather than those things being the ultimate things that shape the way you live now, I want you to see that it is what Christ has done for you and will do for you that can shape your present. You're chosen. You are loved. You are set apart by God and Christ has risen from the dead and God has prepared an inheritance for you and Christ's death and resurrection was foretold by the prophets and God has caught you up and carried you along in his great stream of redemption. Therefore, let that, what God has done for you and will do for you, let that change the way you live now.
But how? Firstly, he says, in where you put your hope. Verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we use the word hope, it's often not much more than wishful thinking, is it? In fact, when we say we hope something is going to happen, there's almost an expectation that it probably won't. Like, as Eric said to me this morning, I really hope it snows, but the forecast doesn't look great. Or I really hope he doesn't go and do that again, but given what he did last time, he probably will. There's often a but to our hope. Christian hope is different. There is no but after Christian hope. When the Bible talks of hope, it is talking about a settled, certain expectation that this is going to happen. And Peter's saying, hey, God has done all of this for you in Christ. Therefore, set your this is going to happen hope now on what? What do we normally set our hopes on? What do we normally pin our hopes on? What do we tend to look to to tell us that the future is going to be okay? Could be your qualifications, couldn't it? The exams you hope to pass or the exams you've already passed. I've got this piece of paper, that'll mean things are going to be okay. It, it could be uh, key relationships. Uh, this person I know, they, they will do the necessary. It could be wealth. There's enough money in the bank to see us through. It could be yourself. Hey, I, I just know that I, I'm, I'm going to be able to work this out. Instead, Peter is saying, set your hope on Christ and all that he is going to do for you in the future. The grace that will come when he returns and makes everything new. Live now in the light of that certain future. Let that be what shapes your response to hard times now. Let that be what shapes the way you treat your wife or your kids or your colleagues. Let that be what decides for you whether you stand up and speak out or stay silent on some issue. When Jesus returns, and he's going to return, he's going to put everything right. He's going to right every wrong and heal every harm. Let that be what shapes your now. Peter is saying. Okay, but did you notice he said, set your hope fully on that? Because you could just do it partially, couldn't you? You could just do it a bit. I don't know if you've ever been punting, but in, um, in Cambridge, at the River Cam, which flows through the city, is shallow. And there are these fl uh, flat-bottomed boats, which are called punts, that you propel along the river with a pole. And every, every year the tourists arrive and try and give it a go. Okay, and sometimes you will watch them trying to get into a punt. And the fatal error is to put one foot in the punt 
while leaving the other one just that bit too long on the river bank as the punt slowly moves away from the bank <laughs> with the inevitable consequences. Peter is saying, don't do that. Okay, don't do that with your hope. Don't, don't, don't put one foot on the bank and one foot in the punt with your hope. Don't try and live life with one foot in both camps. Don't set your hope partially on what Jesus has in store for you and some of it in your bank account or others' good opinion of you or your publication record, or your chosen politician. Don't split your hope. In view of what God has done for you, and will do for you, set your hope fully on what Christ is going to do when he returns. But how are you supposed to do that? Second point, the way you think matters. And Peter says that to set your ultimate hope on the grace to come at Christ's return, that is going to take serious mental effort. You've got to do something. And you can do it, he says, by verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, as you can see from your a footnote probably in your Bible, when he says preparing your minds for action, he literally says by girding up the loins of your mind. And in the ancient world, if a man wanted to run, he had to hoist his robes up between his legs, tuck it into his belt and then run. He had to do the necessary to be able to run. Okay, today, given it is way too cold to go out running, we might say, hey, wax your skis, sharpen your edges. We might say, hey, roll up your sleeves. There's work to be done. And you're to do that, Peter says, with your mind, with the way that you think, with the way that you see life. You see, for Christ's return and the new creation he is going to bring when he returns, if that is to be the thing that shapes you now, you're going to have to be intentional about thinking like that. Because we don't do that naturally. What we do do naturally is stuff like nostalgia. Okay, we, we can look back at the past, the good old days, the glory days, and we want our present to be like that or our future to be like that. And we fixate on the past. Or you can fixate on the hurts of the past. I don't, I don't mean to um, ridicule that. But our, the hurts of our past can have more of an influence on our now. Or maybe thinking about the future, what we, can, what we naturally can be like. Maybe you're a pessimist by nature. And so you have a gloomy view of the future. Or maybe you look to the future with anxiety. Well, for any of us, Peter says, hey, we need to roll up the sleeves of our thinking if we're to seriously let this influence our now. Okay, but then he puts it another way. To set your hope fully on the grace to come in Christ, you need to be sober-minded. What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of being sober-minded? It's to be drunk, isn't it? To be drunk-minded, to be intoxicated. 
Because when you're intoxicated, if you think about it, when you're intoxicated, you either think that things... Not that I've ever been intoxicated, OK? Yeah, once. OK. <laughs> Cycling home after a rugby match, but I won't tell you about that. Um, uh, when you're intoxicated, you can fall into two traps. Not physically, though you might end up in the ditch, OK? <laughs> as I nearly did. OK, when you're intoxicated, you either think that things are way better than they really are, and you're some kind of superhero, okay, you can do anything. Or you can think things are way worse than they are, and everyone's out to get you. Everyone's out to pick your pocket. When you're intoxicated, you either see fairies or monsters, or your vision is too blurred to distinguish the two. To be sober-minded is to see your now as it really is, and the future that Christ is going to bring as it really is. And living in the now, when you've set your hope fully on Christ and what he's, the grace he's going to bring when he is revealed, you are not intoxicated by the current culture. You're not being intoxicated by that. And you're not being anaesthetized by comfort and consumerism. You're not being taken in by the dreams of those on the left or the nightmare scenarios of those on the right. Instead, you think straight. You roll up your sleeves and you train yourself to see all of now in the light of all that God has been doing and is doing and will do when Christ returns. And when you find yourself putting your ultimate hope in something other than Christ, you take your thinking in hand. You realize what you are doing and you speak to yourself and you remind yourself, Martin, I have a far better hope than that. And as you do, Peter says there are going to be some things that you don't do. Third point then, don't be conformed. Now, Erasmus, um, the Dutch humanist and philosopher, it's been a good day for the Dutch, hasn't it? We had a Dutchman teaching class this morning at nine. We had a Dutchman leading the service. And now we've got, I think my microphone's just died. Um, and <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a Dutch, yeah. Um, and now we've got Erasmus. And um, Erasmus wrote, human beings are not born, but formed. Okay, now, you can take that the wrong way. Okay, if that is taken to mean that a human embryo or a human infant is less than human, it's wrong. If it is taken to mean, as I think Erasmus meant it, that a human life is one that can be shaped, then that is absolutely right. Because you're not born the way you are now. Things shape you. Things form you. The question is, what is that? What's doing that to you now? Your past and the way you see yourself now and what you put your hope in for the future, they have this power to shape you. But so too do your desires. Okay, you, your past and the way you see yourself now and what you put your hope in for the future, they all shape you. But so too do your desires, Peter says, the desires that you seek to satisfy. Okay, look at Peter's second command, verse 14. As obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, so Peter says, this is your identity. You are a child of God. You have a heavenly father who has chosen you and loved you and set you apart. That is your identity. And because he is so good to you, you obey him. And that means not letting your past, the past when you didn't know him as your father, the past when you were ignorant of his love for you, the past when you had no idea of the security that you have in him, knowing that you're chosen by him, you don't let that past, the past of your ignorance, be what shapes you. Okay, I want you to think how that works here in Switzerland. Okay. You, maybe you came here from your home country and you could not believe that the shops do not open on Sunday because you want to go shopping. Hey, you need to go shopping, but you can't go shopping because all the shops are shut. What kind of a country is that? But after a few weeks, you begin to realise, hey, maybe this isn't so bad after all. Maybe the Swiss are onto something. Maybe not being able to shop is actually a good thing. Maybe I was just ignorant of what Switzerland has got right. Then you're faced with a choice, aren't you? Because you could continue trying to live in your old identity, the you that could always go shopping. But if you do, you're going to spend your Sundays frustrated. Or you could live into your new identity and rest in being in Switzerland. And Peter's saying, do that. Live into your new identity as a child of God and don't be conformed to all of those things you wanted to do when you didn't know his love for you. Okay, I want you to think about what those passions of your former ignorance might look like. Before you knew you were chosen by God, how did the desire to win the approval of others drive you? Before you knew he approved of you. Before you knew that you were loved by God, how did your need for love, your desire for love, drive you to seek love in all the wrong places? Before you knew that your life is in his hands, his good hands. How did the desire to control everything and everyone show itself in your life? Before you knew that you were accepted in Christ, how did the need to always be right result in the need to always put other people down? Before you knew your security in him, How did your desire for security and to know that you were okay warp the way that you viewed money or power or even sex? But now, Peter says, you're chosen. You are loved. You are set apart. You are a forgiven child of God. So don't let these old passions and desires shape you. Instead, he says, let it be God. Last point then, do be an imitator. Don't be conformed, but do be an imitator. 
Okay, if you haven't realised already, kids tend to copy their parents, don't they? Okay, I remember um, once our eldest daughter, Naomi, coming into the bathroom, this was in the UK, um, coming into the bathroom when I was shaving, you know, I've got foam all over my face, she pulled up the stool next to me, she proceeded to cover her face with shaving foam and try and copy me shaving. Okay, you'll be glad to know she didn't carry on doing that, given that she is a girl. Okay, but that didn't last. But what should last is our desire and will to copy our Heavenly Father, to be shaped, by, to be shaped and formed by his character. We're not to be conformed to the desires that dominated our old identities, but, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Now there's an expression uh, in English that goes, like father, like son. Unfortunately, it also holds true for daughters, okay? Because my girls say that all of their good qualities come from Sue, and all of their bad qualities come from me. And one of the sobering things about being a parent is watching as your children become more like you. Except when it comes to the one who called us, when it comes to our Heavenly Father, there are no bad habits to take on, are there? There's only the good and the beautiful. There's only his holiness. Now we can hear the word holy and we can hear it referred to a person, and we can be in danger of thinking of stained glass saints. We can think of nunneries and monasteries and withdrawal from the world, and that's what it means to be holy. We can think of people who are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. We can think of people who have lost the ability to laugh or who, or who have a certain aloofness about them. And it's not just wrong passions that they've rid themselves of, it's any passion, which of course is what Buddhism would have you do. Okay, just get rid of your desires, die to all your desires, no passions, that's the way to enlightenment. Is that what Peter's talking about here? Absolutely not. His quote tells us why, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy for I am holy. And he's quoting from the book of Leviticus. And you might hear that and shivers go down your spine because you have made a New Year's resolution to read through the whole of the Bible. And you start in Genesis, but in a few weeks, where have you got to? You have got to Leviticus, haven't you? And there is blood being splattered everywhere. And there are priests tearing down houses because they've got mildew in them. And there are skin rashes and hairs turning white. And you read this and you think, this is a different world. And it becomes the graveyard of your New Year's resolution. <laughs> Yet the truth is, I think, none of us can truly understand the Christian faith without understanding Leviticus. And just like in the world of healthcare, Okay, in the world of healthcare, there's dirty, clean, and sterile. So Leviticus presents us with three ritual states, unclean, clean, and holy. And God is holy in all of his beauty, in all of his moral perfection. He is set apart. He is in a class of his own. He is unapproachably good. 
And just like you and I cannot enter the operating theatre at the hospital unless we are sterile, so you cannot approach God unless, like him, you're holy. The problem is, we aren't, are we? We're unclean. And all of the rules and the regulations in Leviticus are, drive, are, are, are written to drive that point home. They're in the warp and the woof of their daily lives, you're unclean and God is holy. But of course, Leviticus also sets out the way that God has provided for the people to be able to become clean and to approach him. And it is the way of spotless sacrifice being offered in our place. Okay, but Leviticus is also about God's people being different from the peoples around them. And at numerous points throughout the book, God says to the people, hey, I'm holy, so you also be holy. You're, you're my people now. You be holy as well. Turn away from the attitudes and the practices of the surrounding nations and instead become like me. Don't live like everybody else. Don't live like all those people around you. You have a new identity as my people. So take on my character. Take on my love for your neighbor. Take on my love and concern for the poor and the vulnerable. Take on the sexual ethics that protect and nurture marriage and family and children. Take on the worship of me rather than the worship of the idols that demand the lives of your children as payment. So to be holy is to be different. It is to be set apart, but it's not the set apartness of the ghetto. It is the set apartness that shines a light to the world that says there is something better there is something infinitely more beautiful and good, and it's God. And Peter says, hey, to live like that, that's not just a call on ancient Israel. That's a call on the new, the true Israel, the people of God. From these first century Christians, Jew and Gentile, in northern Turkey, down to you and me today. Be holy, because God is holy. Question is, is, why would you embrace that call? Why would they embrace it? Why, why, why should you embrace it? Because it's precisely that differentness that was getting these people that Peter is writing to into trouble. That's what's bringing the hostility on them. It's their differentness. It's the fact that they do stand apart from their neighbor morally, not physically. It's their refusal to take part in the pagan temple sacrifices. It's their refusal to worship the emperor or to attend the gladiatorial games or engage in sex outside of marriage. That is what is turning their friends and their families and their colleagues against them. And it is precisely that differentness over attitudes to sexual ethics or care for the vulnerable, like the unborn and the elderly, or the refusal to worship and sacrifice children to the gods of the age that can bring hostility and the charge of intolerance upon us. So why should you do it? 
Why be holy in all your conduct? Why be willing to pay the price of becoming more like God? Because Jesus was willing to pay the price to become like you. Later on in this letter, Peter tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Peter's saying, if all the sacrifices and rituals in Leviticus were about how Israel could be brought near to the holy God, Peter's saying, yeah, but they were only ever signposts. They were signposts pointing to the one last final spotless sacrifice of Christ himself. And at the cross, the righteous one became unrighteous. He took on all of our unrighteousness that we might become righteous. The Holy One took on our unholiness that we might become holy. He became like us so that we might become like him. And when you realise that, when you realise the depth of Christ's sacrificial love for you, it makes you want to grow more like him. When you understand the cost of his love for you, you will embrace the cost of love for him. Because he's the ultimate example of what it means to be holy. He's the one who perfectly imaged God. He's the one who perfectly loved his neighbour and cared for the vulnerable and shone like a light in the world. And he didn't do it by withdrawing from the world. He did it by entering the world and taking all of the grief and the pain and the sorrow and the hostility of the world upon himself. And we've been brought near because he was cut off. That's how much he loves us. So Peter says, where are you going to set your hope? Set your hope fully on him. You've only just begun to taste all that he has for you. Set your hope fully on him. And don't be conformed to how everyone else lives or how you used to live. Instead, let his character and his good passions shape you. Be holy as he is holy. Let's pray.